Well, I will not confirm or deny that I have a Liverpool jersey on underneath. <laughs> Hence, the jacket <laughs> zipped up. I'm regretting this decision. Could have just wore a shirt and gone up after and changed, but no. I don't know. Was anybody here when D.A. Carson spoke? Yeah? He had some horrible coat on or something on, I heard, and it was an awful color. So maybe I'm helping to take away from that memory. And he'll say, do you remember that speaker who wore a jacket? Uh, Anything to help out my brother, uh, Don. Old guys, though, have excuses. Us young guys don't. So we're in Romans chapter 12. We read that earlier. uh, And... Uh, I want to uh, probably explain a little bit of, of where I've come from, where I'm going. You know, you, you, you see chapters in Romans and you, you may be thinking, well, why has he chosen this chapter or that chapter or another? And, and, if, and if I'm being honest, and it's generally a good idea for a person who's speaking at a conference to be honest, I will tell you that I don't actually really think about these things in a whole lot of depth. I wish I could say to you that I agonized in prayer for many hours over what I should speak to you on. But I'm the sort of guy where I just go through Romans and think, oh, that'll be interesting, and oh, that'll be nice, and there we go. There's three talks, and they say five talks, and I think, okay, I have two more to find, and I find them. And I trust the Lord that he will use them, and it is God's word, but I don't really have a nicely laid out Pattern. I can't give you five P's of what I'm trying to do. You know, preachers who use alliteration and they have, you know, their three-point sermons, P this, P that, P the other. Drives me nuts myself, but uh, I'm sorry to the ministers who do that. But I thought definitely Romans 12 for the simple reason that a lot of young people do struggle with God's will. I think that's a a commonplace. They want to know what God's will is for their life. And I have really bad news for you. It's not as exciting as you might think. It's actually, in some respects, rather ordinary and and boring from from one perspective. Uh, And you're going to have to come to grips with that. uh, Because life as a Christian, for the most part, is rather ordinary. It's not really a life where you're constantly floating on the clouds and enjoying delight after delight and and just thinking, you know, this is what heaven will be like. Most days are a grind, a battle, just to pray, just to read, just to get through the day and be kind to someone and not kill someone. Uh, You may know the feeling. So you get to chapter 12 and there's a bit of a shift because In chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse about 21, you have really what is the lack of righteousness, a problem with humanity, both Jew and Gentile. And then from chapter 3, verse 21 to about chapter 9, you have God's provision of that righteousness, his salvation, and the many uh, forms it comes in through sanctification, justification, adoption, and, and so on. But In chapters 9 to 11, you have the Jewish problem of the rejection of God's provision of righteousness. Whereas there's been a Gentile sort of embracing of that. And Paul deals with that issue. But then 
you get to chapters 12 to 16, and you really have the application now of God's righteousness in very specific details. We saw earlier in chapter 8 the sort of mechanics of how sanctification takes place, that the triune God dwells in you. You saw in chapter 5 that God is your friend and you can have assurance. And you saw later on in chapter 8, verse 28, that God is for you in every conceivable way. Now, a shift takes place. It is uh, what theologians have called the indicative imperative model, the indicative what God has done, the imperative what we must do. Now, if you were to ask the question, where does the first imperative take place in the book of Romans, you would have to get to chapter 6 to, I think, verse 11, 12, or 13 to get the first command from God. You have to wait six chapters before God tells you something to do. But then when you get to chapter 12, there's a whole host of commands. And there had been some earlier applications in verse 12 of chapter 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. But by and large, it goes back into a whole host of indicatives again. And then chapter 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live. And, and then a whole host of indicatives of things that God has done resurface. But now we get to a strong host of imperatives, of things that we must do. So when Paul says, I appeal to you, or I summon, or I exhort, or I admonish you, therefore, brothers, notice he's speaking to Christians. He's not asking non-Christians to do something. There's no point saying to non-Christians that you need to offer your body as a living sacrifice. If they are not in union with Christ, if they are not thankful for all that God has done for them, you're wasting your time. It's moralism when you do that. And that's not the gospel. So he speaks to them as brothers. And he says, by the mercies of God. And I take that to mean basically anything from chapter 1 to this chapter, chapter 12, where you could identify a mercy of God. And, and there are dozens and dozens of God's mercies that have already been spoken of in these chapters. And so in light of all that God has done for you, the indicative, here's the imperative, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable or pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. So you are to present your body as a living sacrifice, which is a rather startling and shocking way of speaking in the first century because sacrifices were very much part of first century worship. But when you get a sacrifice, it is something ordinarily that's living. It's an animal and you take it to an altar and you slice it in half and its blood pours out and it's dead. And yet Paul is saying, you are not to kill yourself, but rather offer your bodies continually, it's a present active participle, over and over again as a living sacrifice. Now, they shouldn't really be shocked by this by chapter 12, because Paul has already said in chapter 6, verse 2, that we die to sin. 
But then he says in that same chapter, chapter 6, verse 8, that we live with Christ. So we die to sin, we live with Christ. And then later on in chapter 6, verse 13, he says we are alive from the dead. So there's all of this language about living and dying. And, and as I said earlier in chapter 8, verse 13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So by chapter 12, they have this idea of death and life. And what Paul is saying now is that if you are going to live, you are going to need to die. And as you die, you will truly live. So there's a positive application of that. And this sacrifice is also called holy or consecrated or or set apart. And it really has in view the moral excellency of God's people who offer their bodies. Now, when he says bodies here, I take this also to mean really who we are as human beings. We are body souls. I remember being at a conference. It was a Ligonier conference in uh, Orlando, and um, there was a speaker. It's not worth naming him, very well-known speaker, and he said... And the problem with big conferences is you've always got to have a catchy line to get the people excited. And the speaker says, you are not a body with a soul. You are a soul with a body. And you wouldn't believe these Americans. They thought that was the most insightful thing you've ever heard. (laughs) And I was scratching my head because I just thought, wait a minute. That doesn't make really a whole lot of sense. We are not one thing with another. And you could say, we are not a soul with a body, and we're not a body with a soul. We are body souls. Our identity is such that we are fundamentally, in our complete humanity, body souls. There's not a priority of one over the other. Who you are as a human being made in God's image is a body soul. And so when we offer our bodies... I would say we are offering our body souls, our bodies which are temples of the Holy Spirit, our bodies whereby we have a spiritual animation, whereby we think and we believe, but also our bodies where we have hands and feet and brains and lungs and and all of these parts that we use for God's glory. If I didn't have certain body parts, I would not be able to do the things that I'm able to do, which I hope and prayer for God's glory. If God were to take away my tongue as a, as a very basic example, and I didn't have a tongue, I wouldn't be able to speak. I'm to offer everything that belongs to me as a child of God in his service, whether that is my tongue or my brain or my soul or my feet, whatever it is, as a living sacrifice. So that's a sort of introduction to what's going to follow in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. But here's the opposite, and you'll find in Scripture that it's never purely negative and never purely positive. For every negative, do not kill. There is a positive, preserve life. And Here, Paul is saying, do not be conformed to this world, but instead of just saying, well, I'm not going to be conformed to this world, I'll go and live 
in a monastery somewhere and hide away. He's saying, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There again brings home the point of our body-soul. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So stated negatively then, spiritual worship first involves a refusal to be conformed to this age. You see, Peter will say, do not be guided by the principles of this world. Do not be conformed or molded into the world's cares and thoughts and devotions and ideas and the whole package that makes the world think, the collective thinking of the world, which we are being inundated with on a daily basis. How are we to view this group of people? What are we to believe about this? What is right? The world has a philosophy. And it's fairly obvious for us to see in this age more than perhaps even 20 or 30 years ago. The things that my children are being confronted with by way of social media compared to what I had to deal with is very different. As a child, I grew up, and in South Africa, the part of the problem for me, and it was a blessing, is that on every odd day, it was English one day and Afrikaans on the TV the other. So, you know, I gave up TV for half of the week. I didn't understand Afrikaans. And then when... TV was on, you, you watched your, your one show that you looked forward to, and uh, I think it was like Airwolf. And if anyone knows what Airwolf is, you are, you are an old person. <laughs> <laughs> and the extent of my childhood then, moving to Canada, I just remember moving to Canada, and I loved racing home from school on my bike and getting home by 3 o'clock because school ended at 2.30, and I had to get home by 3 o'clock because Alvin and the Chipmunks was on. And I basically lived my life in conformity to Alvin. He was my hero growing up. I love Alvin. He made me feel good about myself. But you see, being conformed to the world then and being conformed to the world now, my children are being taught about gay marriage. They're being taught about sexuality. They're hearing this, that, and the other, and they're being flooded with this. And so you, I am sure, are in a very similar position where every single day the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold. But we are to be transformed, because there is a problem with our minds, by the renewal of our minds. And that is what we would call a a passive imperative, that God effects the transformation, but we have to cooperate as it takes place. God alone can transform us, but we can't be unwilling in that transformation. So we have to do something. It's a passive imperative, but we still do it. That word transformed is actually a rather unique word because it's used twice elsewhere. And it actually is in reference to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ when he was transformed from his humiliation to his exaltation. There's a startling change that takes place so that Peter goes out of his mind and he, and he shines as white as light in majestic glory and our minds are to be transformed. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 that we are being transformed as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. So we are being transformed. We're being renewed. 
And we are to be transformed by testing what is the will of God. And so young people will often ask, I want to know what God's will is for my life. It's a common question. It's a, it's a good question. They're asking, what is God's will? They're, you know, it's better than the young person who just goes off and, and does whatever they want without asking anyone. At least someone's asking, what is God's will? And this is obviously a very difficult question because some of us have this idea that, that God has some special, very special plan for each of us and that if we can just tap into this scroll and and unfold it and read it, we'll see, oh, well, he wants me to become a, a dentist or a garbage truck driver or uh, whatever, a professional athlete, and then three years later I'll find a spouse and it will be this person and not that person for sure uh, because there's a footnote that says only go for a brunette and never a blonde. And you unfold this scroll and it has all of these points about what you expect and want your life to look like. And you're looking for confirmation from someone that that is God's will. But the problem is, is that God's will is actually very basic and it allows you a great deal of freedom. God will say the avoidance of sexual immorality is his will. He will say giving thanks in all circumstances is his will. He will talk about how generous giving is part of his will. And then you tell a young person, well, you know, give thanks in all circumstances and be generous if you are able and, and, and show kindness to people and so on. And they think, yeah, but I really want to know, like, what's God's real will for my life? And you have to then take them back to God's word and say, well, let's read the Ten Commandments and don't do anything stupid. And if you feel that you want to go off to Africa and go to Cape Town and jump into a shark tank and see some sharks and, and come back up, hopefully, and then you want to go and drink a glass of wine in Constantia and then you want to fly to Australia and see a kangaroo and come back home and you have the means to be able to do that without crippling yourself with debt or harming anyone then go ahead and do it. You want to go off to university because you've studied hard and you want to go to uh, Durham or you want to go to St. Andrews and you say, well, you know, what is God's will? And God allows you to make that choice as long as you don't sin. God's will is that you don't sin, but within the orbit of all of those commands, you have freedom and you don't actually have to worry about tapping into some special will whereby you're freaking out. Maybe I didn't do God's will when, in actual fact, you've done nothing wrong. I mean, think about it. There's lots of young people here, probably a couple people single, and uh, this would be a dreaded event in your life. Tell me if I'm wrong. A young man comes up to you. You're a young lady, of course. <laughs> Just so we're clear. <laughs> and he tells you, God has told me that we should be together. I have been able to transform my mind and renew it. And I've been able to test and see what his good and perfect will is. And it's that you and I should be together. Now you see how that could be deeply problematic. 
Because if indeed that is God's will, what choice do you then have in the matter? If God has actually revealed that to the person, should not the young lady say, well, who am I to argue with God's will? So it's a, it's a great tactic if your theology is bad. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, well, I'm not going to use that one this weekend. <laughs> See, you can't make God's will into something that would bring you into bondage because God doesn't work that way. You can be kind to someone, you can be loving, you you can show deference and respect and honor, and if in doing God's will that way, you should find someone who retreats and says, well, I don't know, but then thinks, yeah, this is is the type of person I like, and and God's will has not been compromised, then, then so be it. But I don't think that young people need to worry about finding the minutiae of every little decision and say, well, I don't know if this is God's will. God's will is there for you to know very clearly by his word. And everything else is left to Christian liberty, which is something that Paul gets into in later chapters. Now, we have to move along, but um, notice now we're going to get into really giftings. And this is important for the other reason that I believe that we should be speaking about all of this theology in the context of the church. So... This is a a major issue for me speaking all over the world is the priority that people need to give to the local church in terms of their gifting. So notice that Paul is going to speak about true humility and not false humility. So by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, what is... He's saying, do not think of yourself more highly. And the context is gifting, but that doesn't mean that you are to think of yourself more lowly than you ought as well. In other words, take a sane view of yourself. And we understand ourselves and our gifts by faith. We understand who we are. We understand our our giftings and Humility proceeds from genuine faith. And genuine faith enables you to look to God and especially Christ as the giver of all good gifts and to not deny the gifts that God has given to you. Because to deny a gift that God has given to you is not an act of faith. The act of faith is to know God and the God who gave you the gift, and to use your gift or gifts well in a spirit of humility. But you still need to understand what your gifts are. I mean, it's, it's important just on a, a, a very basic level. Someone will come to me, and, and what happens is a lot of young men, they get converted in the church, and they think, well, I need to become a preacher. It's like, okay, to be a valuable Christian, I need to become a preacher. And there are some young men, and I don't care what you say, they will never, ever be a preacher. They don't have the skills. They don't have the ability to even talk to people in a normal way. They have a funny voice, and they would distract people with their preaching. They can't be a preacher. They don't have the gifts. It's just a fact of life. Spurgeon has a great section on this, that back in the day, if you didn't have a proper voice to be able to to be heard, you couldn't be a preacher. 
And if you lack certain basic intellectual gifts, there are certain jobs you should not do. And the, the sooner we accept this in life, the, the easier it may be for some of us. I knew there were certain things I simply could not do. I think I got one or two gifts, and that's being quite generous right now, and I do them. But mostly, I'm an absolute failure in every other area of life. I did actually get rid of a problem in the toilet once where we didn't have to call the plumber in, and you wouldn't believe the... I walked around the house like this for a, a very long time. But I digress. Mustn't. So notice, Paul will say, for as in one body we have many members, there's a difference of function in light of the gifting, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So the church is a body, and we know that. And the body functions, and we need the body for the church to function, and we need the different parts to move and act. There was a movie I watched. I, uh, I get to watch a lot of movies because I travel so much on planes, and, and well, uh, what does one do on a plane? I can't read on planes, so I have to watch movies. And I watched this movie. I think it was actually a, an English film. Uh, I think it's um, Me Before You. Anyone see Me Before You? Yeah, very sad film, right? You have this successful young businessman. He's, uh, uh, you know, he's a good-looking guy as far as good-looking guys go. Right, okay, fine. Um, and he gets hit by a car, and he's paralyzed. And basically, he, 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 he lives to a certain point because, you know, out of respect for his parents, but, but life's not worth living for him, even though he falls in love, and even then life was not worth living. It's a, it's a touching story, but why was life not worth living? The body simply could not function, and the church needs to understand that the church isn't really worth being a church, whether a local church or the universal church if the body doesn't function, each according to its parts. There's no point having Christ as the head if the body and the arm and the legs and everything else simply will not work. That's not how the body was intended to be. So notice in verse 5, actually, that it's not the body of Christ. It's actually one body in Christ. So the former, which is sometimes used in the New Testament, emphasizes the headship, the body of Christ, and the focus is upon the head. But here Paul will say something different. One body in Christ, and he's emphasizing their unity. We are one in Christ. And also, he doesn't say not, he doesn't say members of one body, but members one of another emphasizing our organic union with each other, not just with Jesus Christ. And that's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, where you'll get that, and, and, and we don't have time to go there. But members really has no meaning apart from the body. You can't be a member of nothing. You can't be a member really on your own. That's not how the New Testament church is designed to function. So if people say to you, well, the Bible doesn't speak about church membership, you just need to say, yes, it does. 
take them here and say, we are members one of another, we have functions, and where do you think these functions take place? Well, we'll find out, because he says, having gifts, plural, that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, and really what he's saying now is, in verse 6, these gifts are divine uh, endowments, uh, generally speaking, and they differ. And you see, we are all meant to be different. Not everyone who's converted becomes a pastor. Not everyone who's converted becomes a deacon. So it's meant to be a body with different parts. And they differ from one another because God has so in his wisdom orchestrated that we should differ. But then notice he says, according to the grace given to us. So we have natural giftings, natural endowments as human beings. And when God converts us, it's not as though he makes us different types of people. So Paul, I suspect, if Paul had never become a Christian, would he have always been a hard worker? Yeah. He seems the type. Before he was converted, he was really hard working. I mean, he went around trying to kill everyone who was a Christian. Peter, do you think if Peter had never met Jesus Christ, he would have been the bold type and the sort of leader and spokesman and impetuous and, and all like that? Then he's converted, and what happens? Well, at Pentecost, he's the bold one. He's the preaching. He's the spokesman. In other words, God actually gifts you from the time of your birth, but it's grace that cultivates those gifts in a way to glorify God. And if you don't have certain gifts, you don't need to worry because God gives you gifts according to his wisdom and not yours. So, there is... Prophecy. Some are prophets. I would love to have been, well, actually, I don't, wouldn't have loved to have been a prophet. You know, I just finished preaching through Jonah. There's no way I would want to be Jonah. I think Jonah died and then was resurrected and he was in the whale and he was spit out and, and maybe his skin even got bleached and he's walking into Nineveh and he must have looked a real sight and then he's having arguments with God and, well, Jonah, no way. And Jeremiah, oh, wow, can you imagine being Jeremiah or Moses? That was the gift given to them. So we have to do so in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. So service, uh, this may be a general type of service, which was also used in the service of the deacon, but it's not as though someone sitting here tonight can actually say, you know what, I don't think I got any of those gifts listed. I mean, really, is service something that you definitely don't have? You may say, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a teacher, but can you really say I can't serve? And I came across this quote, I don't know who it's from, but it's a good quote. The ability to do lowly service well is a gift. Many brilliant people seem constitutionally unable to perform lowly service well. There is a lot 
of lowly service to be done in the church, and anyone who has the gift of doing it should rejoice at the wonder of divine grace. I've met some brilliant people in my life. They have not been a whole lot of help in the church. There was a guy in our church who actually diagnosed diseases at Vancouver Children's Hospital when they didn't have a name for the disease. So he had to come up with a new name for diseases that exist in this world. So you can imagine he's, 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 he's particularly bright. The guy was an absolute spiritual disaster of epic proportion. And he couldn't do anything in the church. The one thing he tried to do, he ruined. The point is, is that everyone wants to have children that are brilliant. Oh, my child, you know, he's really smart, straight A's. And and people want to have good-looking children. They want to have brilliant children. They want to have successful children. And the more and more I go through life, the more and more I realize the most miserable people are the smartest people, the wealthiest people, the people who have given all these so-called gifts. But imagine actually just taking a step back tonight and saying, you know, I've been given the gift to serve and to do lowly service in the church. I've met a lot of happy people who are very content stacking chairs, cleaning up, doing things like that, and they do it well, and they do it with joy. And the one who teaches in his teaching, and so in the early church there were there weren't so many books. It's not like we can just go down and buy good books, you know, and say to Colin, well, what would you recommend? Besides knowing Christ, what would you recommend? And, uh, you know, you can read a book, and uh, someone told me about how they had a bit of a car problem, and so they opened up Knowing Christ and read it, and I was really excited about that. And the early church, you don't get to just go and pick out a good Christian book. You really depended upon the oral community of teachers. They were so important. And teachers are important. We need good teachers. We need good theological education to produce good teachers. And one of the reasons I travel so much all over the world, especially to Africa and South America and Asia, is because... There's no theological education there. Most pastors in Africa have never had an hour of proper theological education. They may have been given the gift of teaching, and they need to use it, but they need to use it well. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, and that probably means someone who encourages, because early church life was pretty grim. So there must have been a continuing need for people to encourage others. Are you saying to me that you simply cannot encourage? Now, I do believe there are some people who are far more gifted than others at encouraging. We know what this is like in the church, right? Something happens to someone, and there are certain people you want to keep as far away from that person who's upset as possible. They simply don't have the gift. Someone's just... Uh, you know, had something grievous happen, and they say, well, you know, rejoice, we're all going to heaven. And they just don't know. They mean well, but they just don't have the gift. And you've got you've to channel people to use their gifts appropriately so that the body functions. The one who contributes in generosity. 
That is, they contribute generously or single-mindedly. They're not thinking, oh, I shouldn't, and maybe I should, and I, maybe I keep my money. No, they're single-minded about what they want to do. They contribute. I have a friend, he's, he's in South Africa, and he became a Christian a few years ago, and, and he, he, he has so much money, he doesn't know really what to do with it. And the poor guy, he can't find a wife because <laughs> who's going to marry him for him? You'd be careful if you become a billionaire. No, you won't know who loves you and who doesn't. And I'm dead serious. And I'm one of the few people he trusts. He tried to offer me a, a blank check to come down and be his pastor. And I didn't. And it's like, oh, I can trust this guy. Truth is, I was scared. I got robbed in Cape Town last time I was there with my family. So a little bit of that. But do you know what his gift is? He makes a lot of money and he gives it to the church. That's his gift. If he were to say to me, oh, Mark, you know, I've really been praying about this, but maybe I should, maybe I should go to seminary, I would say, no, no, no. You keep making as much money as you can in a legal way. It is Africa after all. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> and use it for the kingdom. Build seminaries. Give to translation projects. Use what you have if in contributing in generosity. And, and of course, you don't have to be a, a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever to be able to give generously. It's in proportion to however you're able to give. The church actually needs money. Whether we want to admit that or not, we need money to do things. I need money to go places. I have people who will support me, and there's a place in South America. They don't have any money to bring me down, and someone will say, I'll take care of the plane ticket. Go down and teach. And that's wonderful because they're using their gifts for the kingdom. The one who leads with zeal. And so leaders do so who, who are hard workers. Leaders are generally hard workers. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. I mean, we can all show mercy, but there are some people who have the gift of showing mercy. And mercy is obviously showing compassion to those who are in difficulty. And, and there are some people who come into the church and they're destitute and, and they're a little bit rough around the edges. You wonder when was the last time they ate. And there are just some types of people in the church who gravitate to want to help. And there are others, they just feel uncomfortable. And and I'm not excusing that, but I'm just saying that we've all been given different gifts. And it's almost a good thing you don't have 200 people running over to this person who's destitute because that might make them feel a certain way. So God is so ordained that a church should have gifted people for every type of eventuality. And that the person who does so does so with delight. Well, let's, let's wrap up. I've got uh, a few points of of application. Let me just go through them. The first is this, that if you have a gift, you are to fulfill it. So you need to actually think about what your gift may be, but not the opposite. You're not to do things where you're not gifted. That's equally important. How do you refrain from doing things where you're not gifted? You need to actually ask people about what you think your gifts may or may not be. You, you say, you know, I really feel like maybe I should be teaching children's Sunday school. And there's people who've asked me that. 
And I've gone to my children, hey, what do you think about Darren teaching Sunday school? No, Daddy, not him. <laughs> I go back to Darren, I say, no, Darren, not you. <laughs> well, there are certain people, they scare little kids. They just do. Even my, my associate pastor and I, uh, he's got different gifts than I do. I deal with the youth. They don't really want to deal with him. He's, he's a bit of a nerdy type. He, he knows everything, and he's just very clever and all of that. But I, th- I think the youth just want someone who will maybe relate to them a little more. And, you know, he was homeschooled and stuff, so we can't blame him. But <laughs> I'm only partly kidding. But it's important to know what your gifts are as well as what your gifts are not and to seek counsel on that and not be offended. How many times I've been in the church and you've had to tell someone something and it's like, wow, this is going to take three years for them to come around. Do you expect to have every gift? Who who do you think you are? (laughs) You don't want every gift. Imagine if you had every gift, the things you would have to do then. You should be thankful if you get less gifting, less responsibility. So are you fulfilling your role in the context of the body? And that's not just attending church. That's not just being a leech. There are people, they come to our church and they walk in and they walk out and it's like they shake my hand and I smile and they smile and they say, oh, that was a nice sermon, Pastor. Oh, thank you. And... They're just sucking the life out of me and the church. They come in and they go. They don't really function as part of a body. They don't take seriously that God gifts people and those gifts are to be used in the church. They're some of the most despicable people that exist, if you think about it, because they're sitting in a context where they hear the truth, they embrace the truth, they love the truth, and it does absolutely nothing to affect them in that context. What could be worse? Walking in and walking out. If you walk in and walk out of a church and that is the highlight of your week and the extent of your service, you're doing Christianity wrong. You are to serve. You are a member. The body will function only insofar as you are part of that body and all of the movements that take place. You are either a giver or a grabber. That's why church membership is important because it binds us to a group of people and puts responsibilities on us so that we can all work together using our gifts. Uh, Maybe I've stated it strongly, but um, I don't really see the point of not stating something that seems to me to be quite obvious in God's word about what Paul prays for, and, and he doesn't pray for the saints that they get to church on time. He's praying for them in the context of service, in the context of thanksgiving, in the context of visiting him while he's in prison, and and all of these things. And you look at the New Testament church where they sell what they have to share with those in need, and you see the way in which they minister to one another. And Christianity in some places all over the world has become so anemic that we think it's acceptable to simply go to church and we're Christians. 
you're really, if I may just speak a little more provocatively, not really a whole lot different than a Muslim. They go to a building and they worship and they leave. Christians go and we worship the true God, but if the worship of the true God does not lead us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, then we haven't really grasped who this God is. And I think that's one of the saddest things, that people could be so close and know so much and yet ultimately not follow through on the glories and the mercies of God that have been shown to us. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and the challenging commands to us. They are there. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to test and approve your perfect and pleasing will. We are to function as part of a body and to use our gifts. And we ask, O Lord, that we may take time to think about our gifts to rejoice that we have been gifted and to use them for your glory so that Christ may be glorified in our churches, in our lives, and all over the world. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.